listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Tom. Hey, Bob. Good to be back with you. Good to have you here. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero podcast. You're Tom Friedman, famous uh, foreign affairs columnist with New York Times, author of a number of best-selling books. Uh, now, Tom, uh, I haven't mentioned this to you, but uh, as the timing of this worked out, now normally uh, I take two podcasts a week on Friday. Uh, the one we post is almost always with uh, Mickey Kaus, my longstanding frenemy and ideological nemesis. As it happens, uh, Mickey can't be with us this week. So although you and I are taping this on Wednesday, we're going to post it on Friday. You'll be substituting for Mickey just to make sure. Uh, I, I'm sure you're honored to be, uh, you know, in his shoes, right? Uh, for, uh, but just to make sure that you are of comparable stature, can you remind us how many Pulitzer Prizes you've won? <laughs> I've won three. Three. Okay. Well, I'll check with Mickey. I don't think he's won three. I don't. I don't. In fact, I don't think Mickey has won three prizes of any kind ever. But uh, but I'll I'll check. I'll check. Uh, so anyway, thanks for uh, for doing this duty. A uh, lot to talk about in the world. Uh, I eventually want to want to get around to Ukraine and uh, and also this uh, uh, Kosovo where we're sending more NATO troops and uh, that's not unrelated to Ukraine in a certain sense. But first, I gather you've been in the Middle East where a lot is also happening lately. Yeah, um, basically, I did a trip, Bob, from uh, uh, Doha, Qatar, to um, uh, to um, Dubai, to Israel, to Jordan, to Saudi Arabia. And it was um, interesting for me because um, uh, going from Doha to Dubai to Tel Aviv on one connection is something I've never done before mm -hmm. um, all my time in the region. Um, I, I got to the airport in, in Doha and um, I, I gave the woman my passport and she looked up and said, your final destination is Tel Aviv. And my natural instinct was want to say, could you, could you keep it down a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> you know? uh, but of course that, that actually wasn't necessary. I could fly fly Dubai to Dubai and then Emirates to, to Tel Aviv, and um, uh, and it was a good trip. I I learned a lot and and got some things in focus. Huh. You know, last time I went to Israel, which was a while ago, I naively made the mistake when they asked me where I was planning to go uh, at, at the Tel Aviv airport. That was you know you're interviewed and and I naively told the truth. I said, well, I'm going to spend most of the time in the West Bank. <laughs> they looked at me like I was only later told by the people I joined. No, no, you're not. You're just supposed to say I'm. I'd like. I'm interested in visiting the Holy Land. No, um, you're, talking, you're there for a Hadassah meeting, you know? right? Um. So, uh. Well, yeah. So, uh. Gee, much has changed. You've got uh, some of it related to to I guess the particular uh, travel circuit you you were able to take there. I mean, you've got the rapprochement first of all uh, between. Saudi Arabia and Iran, rapprochement of sorts, that was kind yeah. of presided over by China. Uh, you had you had already seen during the Trump years some Arab countries moving closer to Israel. Uh, Saudi Arabia not so formally as some of the others. Uh, so uh, there's a. I mean, we can get into Israel's internal issues later, but um, a lot of moving pieces here. Well, let's double click, first of all, on the Iran, um, a Saudi kind of rapprochement, because um, I, I did some deep diving on that. And basically, you know, I think a lot of people overread this, uh, Bob, in this sense. Um, 
Saudi Arabia had been in a dialogue with Iran um, in Baghdad, actually, uh, hosted by the Iraqis. And um, so it wasn't like they actually needed China per se to bring them together right. in some Kissingerian sense. Um, and uh, in my reporting, really what I found was that the, the Saudis wanted to take advantage of Chinese mediation for two reasons. One, um, when they were meeting uh, under the Iraqi auspices, um, uh, basically the Iranians um, were much more truculent because they, they kind of had to show off for the Iraqis because they're trying to put their, their thumb on that country right now. Um, and uh, the other reason for the Saudis that it was so important to bring the Chinese in, they actually wanted a third party witness. Um, so the Iranians have promised them things over the years. Um, they didn't need the Chinese to bring them together per se, but they were very interested in a Chinese third party witness mm -hmm. because uh, Iran is very dependent on China. So if and when the Iranians were to cheat um, on any obligations they made for security issues to the, to the Saudis, they would have recourse of a third party to go to. Right. Actually, it was China a couple, um, about six weeks ago, two months ago now, um, and um, I, I had a chance to talk to um, people in the foreign policy establishment there, and I, I was kind of amused because they were sort of like, "Look at us, you know, we we're now Middle East leaders, mm -hmm. you know." And and um, and I, I remarked to one of them that I, I'd like to be a fly on the wall the first time the Saudis call you and tell you the Iranians are cheating, um, and what you're yeah. going to do, because I'm not sure they're really built for that kind of thing. And people forget, if you look back at the history of the 1973-74 disengagement agreements that Henry Kissinger negotiated, I mean, he would begin those negotiations basically by taking the other party's hand, putting it on the table and smashing it with a hammer. Uh, do I have your attention now? You know, mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to watch this because the Chinese have never done this kind of thing before um, uh, in the Middle East Bazaar. So I'm, I'm, I'm really curious to see how that, that uh, plays out. But, but it was, they were brought in much more um, as a witness, um, rather than some kind of, wow, they're taking over the Middle East. Mm -hmm. I would imagine they are perceived by the Arabs, at least, as having more leverage with Iran than America, just by virtue of our recent history with Iran, China's relative, uh, you know, kind of proximity to to Russia, uh, you know, in, in terms of friendship and, and, and so on. So, I mean, I, I guess I'm just saying, we had not put ourselves in a position to be viewed as anything like, um, you know, like a, a neutral arbiter or anything there. No, I mean, yeah, there, there was really no chance. The United States had no juice. We have no representation diplomatically in Tehran. Yeah. Of the other, though, from a Saudi point of view, why it was advantageous for them to bring the Chinese in is that um, China is a huge buyer of, of Iranian oil. Uh, and so the Iranians are dependent on them to some degree, especially now, uh, given sanctions and whatnot. So um, uh, it was probably a pretty smart move on their part to find that kind of mediator who the Iranians couldn't easily, um, mm -hmm. not that they won't, but couldn't easily, you know, turn around and, and, and wiggle out of things. So I think that's where it was about. Now, now, does this have any impact on the chances of A, uh, magically rescuing a nuclear deal? There's been a little news on that front lately. Or B, uh, and relatedly, reducing the chances of conflict between Israel and Iran, because, of course, in Israel, the domestic politics, I think, encourage Bibi uh, to heighten the perception of conflict with uh, any external powers that, that could be of political use to him. And, of course, Iran is, is the best candidate for that. And there's some concern about him ultimately wagging the dog. Um, yeah. So are there what are those connections? Well, let me start at 30,000 feet, because there's a lot of moving 
parts in that. I mean, you know, my message in my conversation to, um, you know, Israeli military folks on Iran is that um, you guys completely misread the United States from the very beginning. And the way I would demonstrate this, Bob, is I, if it was over lunch, I would take out a, a salt shaker and a pepper shaker. I would take them and I'd put them on the table and over here, rather close together. And I would say, here, this is Israel here. This is Iran. Then I take the ketchup bottle and stretch all the way to the other end of the table and say, this is the United States of America, okay? We were never, ever, 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 ever going to bomb Iran or you from a standing start. That was never in the cards. Mm. And you kept coming to Washington and thinking that if you just explained it to us louder, we would understand why that was necessary. We were never going to do that. It was a huge misreading. And that's why, it, that's why it was a double miscalculation by Netanyahu to urge and persuade Donald Trump to break the Iran nuclear deal, which I consider one of the biggest disasters of both Israeli diplomacy and American diplomacy. That was a good deal under the circumstances. We've gone from that deal where Iran was basically a year away from having a fissile material to, for a bomb. Iran now is a, is a threshold nuclear power. It has it has enough probably uh, fissile material at the 60% enriched level, you can quickly go to 90, for probably six bombs today. A complete disaster. So um, right now, you know, you talk to Israeli officials and they'll tell you, look, America may be consigned to um, uh, keep Iran here as a threshold power, but, but we're not. But when I hear that, um, I still actually don't believe they're prepared to take on Iran militarily. For a simple reason, but you know, if you go back to the Iraqi nuclear reactor bombing um, mm -hmm. uh, in the 80s, I mean, Iraq had its whole program. Imagine this, kind of under one in one stadium, almost with a bullseye at the top mm -hmm. and a red dot in the middle that said "bomb here." Okay, drop bomb there. End of program. That is not the case with Iran. Its program is highly distributed, deeply burrowed into mountains, and what that means is to take it out is not an operation; it's a war. Okay, mm -hmm. that's a whole different situation. It's a war where Iran has proxies on Israel's border in Hezbollah that has literally thousands of short-range missiles. And so um, I think ultimately um, Israel is just going to have to fall back on deterrence and um, there'll be this sort of balance of power in the region. I think it is very important. I think it's something very much up your alley of thinking. It is important for us that Iran not get a bomb because the world we've been living in, you and I grew up in, has been shaped by many things, but one was the NPT, uh, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, um, and that we would curb. We didn't. We, it wasn't perfect and couldn't mm -hmm. conscribe, you know, India and Pakistan. But if Iran were to get a bomb, then Saudi Arabia would buy one for Pakistan. Then Egypt would want one, and Turkey would want one, and then maybe right. we are off the races. So I think it's hugely important that Iran does not get a, um, you know, deployable nuclear missile. Um, but uh, we have we and the Israelis, I think, have have really mismanaged this. Uh, or the Israelis in particular, from the very start, because Obama's nuclear deal with Iran was a good and smart deal. Yeah, well, they mismanaged it. Donald Trump mismanaged it. I mean, of course, from Iran's point of view, as far as the NPT goes, if they choose to, to withdraw from the NPT, which they're allowed to do by the treaty, and develop nuclear weapons, they will have exactly the status in international law that Israel has, which is it's not part of the treaty. It has nuclear weapons. That's the way they look at it. 
you know, somebody like me might uh, have once imagined something where you have a regional deal where nobody has nuclear weapons and there's a way of enforcing it and so on, but Israel's not going to sign on to that. Um, anyway, there I, I did. There was some headline suggesting that maybe there's hope of resurrecting uh, the nuclear deal. That would that would be At nice. A lower level, it, it's going to freeze for freeze. They'd freeze where they are. We'd we'd unleash un, loosen some sanctions. I'm yeah. all for it. I think I think anything that that uh, restrains the Iranian program is a good thing. It would be nice. Uh, just quickly elsewhere uh, on on kind of Israel's radar screen, um, there was I don't know weeks ago I guess another round of conflict involving Israel and Gaza, particularly is Islamic Jihad within Gaza. Was that to some extent a product of domestic Israeli? Uh, politics. I mean, I, I gather, I even heard that one version of it was that uh, w- one of the, who is it, Ben Gavir or something, one, one of the far-right members of Netanyahu's coalition had said, look, if you want me to continue to play ball, you need to kill some Islamic Jihad guys. Is that too much of a caricature? Because Israel, I think, did launch the, the hostilities. They bombed uh, these leaders of Islamic Jihad and I think that they hit them in their residences, which means they killed uh, members of their family, including kids. And uh, so far as I know, that kind of came out of the blue. I mean, it was that was not in response to a, a provocation, right? No, it wasn't in response to a provocation. Um, what was the uh, provocation? Islamic Jihad fired rockets um, into Israel uh, in response, I believe, I don't remember the sequence of everything, to Ben Gvir going up on the Temple Mount or is the okay. flag okay. celebration in Jerusalem. So Islamic Jihad gave them a pretext. Um, uh, they warned them not to. They did it. Um, uh, pretty stupid. Meaning they warned them not to do the Temple Mount thing? No, they, they well, they warned Ben Gvir. They warned to, them not to violate the sanctity of the Temple Mount. They did. Islamic right. Jihad responded. Bibi responded. Okay, got it. It, it. it was the usual tit for tat. I mean, it was, um, uh, but I say from Islamic Jihad's point of view, um, uh, three of their leaders um, uh, got wiped out. Um, uh, you know, Israel has technology now. I have no idea exactly what happened in the attacks on their apartments. Um, but uh, they have technology. They, they can fire shaped charges into your bedroom, basically, and kill you on the right side of the bed and spare your wife on the left side of the bed. It Did, exactly, didn't work out exactly that surgically in this case, I think. But there was some, we have a story today about that. So, yeah. Um, so uh, and 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 more broadly, uh, I guess as far as the Palestinian issue is concerned, I mean th- that 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 seems more explosive lately, uh, generally speaking, over the last year or, or so. Um, the uh, of course the the world's focus when they look at Israel right now is mainly on this domestic political drama. Of uh, you know, uh, Bibi trying to overhaul the the, the judicial the, the the laws governing the judiciary. A lot of people resisting. That's ongoing. Uh, continues to be kind of on hold, I guess. Um, and, and and your view does that just have no particular implications for the Palestinian issue, or does it complicate it or simplify it or anything? Um, well, that's a good question. Um, you know, basically, what's happened is that. I walked in um, alongside one of the demonstrations when I was there. Um, quite phenomenal to see 100,000 people in the streets of Tel Aviv, now 21, 21 weeks in a row. Yeah, proportionally, that's like uh, the size of a demonstration in America. 
that has never taken place, I think. Right, that's right. Ever, exactly. but, but happening every every week. Every week for 21 weeks. Right. So, um, I was in week 20, um, and it's amazing cross-section of young, old, um, left, center, and center, right. Um, and you know, one of the signs that really struck me, Bob, was um, uh, it was a sign up in, in Hebrew that said, BB, you came down on the wrong generation. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I was in the Maidan after I was in Taksim Square in Istanbul. I was in Tahrir Square in Cairo. And I was in Occupy Central in Hong Kong. Um, uh, and <clears throat> this one is unique for its uh, the, the longevity of it, uh, the breadth of it. And what it's done is forced Netanyahu into the following choice. I can blow up my country or I can blow up my party. Mm -hmm. um, if he goes ahead, he will blow up the country. Um, because this thing is also spearheaded by uh, Air Force Reserve pilots. And Israel has a, a reserve Air Force, basically. So it's most elite F-35 pilots and venture capitalists. And so he now knows if he goes ahead, you will have civil war in Israel. These people... Um, they run these operations because it's run by elite units that like a military operation. So everything they learned either in Silicon Valley or the Bekaa Valley, they now basically use. Um, they'll surround leaders' houses. They barbed wire one guy's house. I mean, these people totally mean business. They understand something that a friend of mine, Israeli friend of mine, said to me as we were watching the demonstration. We failed to respond to the assassination of Rabin. You know, Rabin was assassinated in 1995. Mm -hmm. And there was much mourning afterwards. There are people now in the Israeli government who um, uh, were not unsympathetic to that assassination. Ben Gvir boasted that he got so close to Rabin's car, he, he pulled off the, the Cadillac, the front, you know, what do they call that thing on the, uh, uh, on, on the hood. Um, yeah. So uh, I think there's an awareness now um, in the center, center left um, uh, and center right, that by not responding to Rabin's assassination, I sense going out and making tons of money and starting new companies and doing the old startup Israel thing, that they left the field to people who, with a salami-like way, got Israel more, more deeply, deeply embedded in the West Bank. So who should have done what in this scenario? Did you say the U.S. was partly complicit in not responding or who, who should have responded more forcefully? So and for younger people like, uh, you know, Rabin was a, a prime minister who was going further than past prime ministers had gone toward making peace with the Palestinians. He was murdered by a settler, uh, uh, and uh, the rest is history. That led to Bibi's rise to, uh, to power, basically. Um, but what, what, what are you saying some people say should have been done in response to the Rabin assassination? Well, I think this is really very broad um, uh, sense, of, sense I, I have, but Israel just had five elections, Bob. Um, before they finally, this government won. And the Palestinian issue was not discussed in mm. any of those five elections. Right. It's not on the agenda. And I, the Palestinians are definitely partly to blame for that, their own dysfunction, the corruption of their leadership. Um, but what I, what I hold Israel accountable for is that um, yeah, this is a country that manifests enormous creativity in technology and war fighting and art and literature. But there's basically been no creativity deployed on how we get out of this conflict. How, if you don't even, if you don't believe Palestinians are ready for a peace agreement, how you nevertheless separate yourselves from them or create conditions uh, in, in which a different Palestinian leadership would emerge. And I think there's a feeling, it, my feeling is, I don't know what will come out of these demonstrations, but I, I do think it is necessary, but not sufficient 
that you kind of get a different Israeli politics emerging from this in order for any progress to go ahead on the Palestinian issue. It is also necessary, but not sufficient, that Abu Mazen, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, move on um, and that you bring in a different leadership. Yeah, I just don't see a happy ending here. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's funny. On this trip to Israel, which was now 13 years ago, that I mentioned, on the way back, well, I, 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 I flew back to the U.S., then caught another plane, and it was such a small plane that there was no first class. As a consequence of that, I found myself sitting next to John Kerry. <laughs> and and uh, I, I, we started talking, and I said, you know, what I concluded is that it's too late for a two-state solution. You can't unscramble the egg. I mean, I could elaborate, but my point is, even back then, I was kind of uh, in despair, and I more than ever, don't see a two-state solution. There's two kinds of one-state solutions, I guess, at least. There's the, the far-right ethnic cleansing one. Uh, well, and then there's the flat-out, uh, just openly apartheid one. Those are both the, the, the right-wing ones. And then there's the one that's apparently too idealistic for anyone to contemplate in Israel seriously, which is some kind of confederation or something that gives some degree of autonomy to, you know, Palestinian areas or something. I don't, I don't, I just don't, what's the happy ending here? I, I don't, I can't imagine it at this point. Yeah, I can't either. Um, I'm, uh, I'm quite despairing. Um, I think there's a third option. You kind of alluded to it. I mean, between total apartheid and, and, and expulsion. I mean, it's kind of the difference between the previous Israeli government, national government under Bennett and the current one. So uh -huh. I see the, it's government under Bennett. I'm not. Re I'm not recommending this as a solution. I'm just identifying this third option. I took the view that we're living in a one-state reality now, mm -hmm. and therefore we need to behave with self-restraint. This was a government also that had an Arab in the cabinet, you know, and so we're going to behave with self-restraint, uh, expand economic opportunities for Palestinians, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, what what Netanyahu's government represents is we're living in a one-state solution, and we're going to behave without self-restraint. Right. Um, now, what's happened in the territories, you really see if the, there's actually a, a sort of low grade intifada now, intifada three going on all the time. So in, intifada one was was really led by internal Palestinian forces. Intifada two was led by Arafat. Intifada three is led by no one. So it's just basically young people mm -hmm. um, uh, going into the drawer, taking out a knife, um, uh, going on TikTok, often filming themselves. TikTok plays a big role in this now. Um, filming themselves attacking an Israeli. Mm. And um, it makes it much harder for Israel to respond to because it's so um, dispersed, individual, um, uh, and um, it reflects basically the breakdown in authority um, in the Palestinian territories. Guns are being smuggled in from everywhere, particularly Jordan, because its border is very porous. And um, it's an it's a incredibly toxic cocktail. Yeah, and of course, in the long run, if you want it to be one state and not apartheid, uh, you'd need to give the Palestinians the vote. And uh, and accordingly, the rights they don't have, like due process and so on. Um, and, and I mean, that's just not even in the conversation in Israel, right? Well, you know, Bob, I actually I've been thinking about this because, um, you know, uh, Biden, uh, to his credit, has refused to invite Netanyahu yeah. to um, uh, since he became prime minister again. I've been thinking of writing a column that say, no, actually, Biden should invite him, um, but only on one condition, very, very simple. I get to ask you one question. Are you intending to annex the West Bank or are you just occupying it pending a negotiation? Mm -hmm. 
I'd like to know the answer. I, Joe Biden, would like to know the answer to that question because mm-hmm. that affects everything we do. I like that. So Biden, would he make the invitation explicitly right. conditional exactly. on getting that answered or right. would he wait yeah. until Bibi got over here and then embarrass him publicly with that? Right. Either way, that. I, I just let him know that question is uh, number one on the agenda. We'll talk mm-hmm. about Iran, whatever you want, but you need to give me an answer because I need to know. Are you intending to annex the West Bank? Or are you occupying it in your mind and therefore waiting for a Palestinian partner? Because Bibi has never made that clear. So uh, if we could uh, move um, in the direction of Ukraine by way of Kosovo, they are, they are actually not unrelated. In the Russian mind, they're very much, uh, uh, as you know, related. So again, for younger folk, in the, in the 90s, Kosovo was part of Serbia. Uh, but Kosovo is mainly ethnically Albanian, and uh, they wanted uh, the ethnic Albanians, a lot of them, wanted their own country, so a separatist movement arose. I mean, the larger Yugoslavia had already started breaking up. Serbia had been part of Yugoslavia. Bosnia had broken off. Uh, the ethnic Albanians in Kosovo said, why not us? So there was an armed separatist movement. Uh, the U.S., NATO chose to intervene on the side of that movement, citing uh, Serbian atrocities committed in suppressing the movement. I'm sure there were many of those. I'm sure there were at least some atrocities committed by the, the Kosovo Liberation Army. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I, don't know, I don't know exactly what the ratio was, but in any event, we chose um, that side. Uh, and then we later recognized uh, Kosovo's independence. and. But the situation never stabilized sufficiently for us to withdraw the NATO troops. And one reason it didn't is because, as usual, when you have a separatist area, that you know, there are always enclaves within enclaves. And northern Kosovo has a, a heavily served population. That's where the trouble arose uh, this week. Apparently, the, uh, what is it, the uh, Serbs, the, the local Serb population boycotted an election and that resulted in the election of, of, of people from Kosovo or, or of that ethnicity, even though they had minority support within the region. And then the Kosovo police tried to um, compel their entry into something or other. And, and I, don't know, I, I, lose, I lose the plot at this point, but, but it's, it's, a, it's a classic case where you have a minority population within an area that has broken off from another we're sending 700 more NATO troops. Um, I, I also want to talk about um, eventually NATO expansion, your opposition to it, and that the connection of that to this and the connection of this to, the, to how Russians view it. But uh, first of all, do you have anything to say about... Uh, now, listening to your um, soliloquy on that, first I'm impressed that your granular knowledge of, uh, <laughs> of Kosovo... Um, but it, I, as I was, as you were talking, a, a thought popped into my mind from one of my great teachers in Beirut, uh, the wonderful Lebanese historian Kamal Salibi. And Kamal um, taught me 50 years ago that great powers should never be involved in the politics of small tribes. That was his one of his iron iron rules, and mm-hmm. um, uh, and and I'm, I, I, it, it does probably apply there. But I I don't know enough about who started mm-hmm. right now. Um, I did catch the BBC this morning about. Um, uh, sending in more peacekeepers. Um, I hope that's a good thing. I don't know enough about it. Yeah, I actually, at the time, after the intervention, I actually wrote an op-ed for your esteemed publication, New York Times. 
and I'm probably misremembering it and, and remembering it as kind of more prescient than, than it would actually read. But I just uh-huh. made the point. I didn't I wasn't I didn't come out against the intervention, but I made the point that, like, there may be a trade off uh, that, that what this this was technically an intervention in the internal affairs of a country, Serbia. On grounds of, you know, we said on grounds of human rights, okay, and, and uh, you know, th- those, those kinds of issues can reach a magnitude where I would agree there's grounds for intervention. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know that this was the case, but in any event, the point I made is that, um, so we sent in uh, peacekeeping troops, and I made the point that, like, uh, this isn't the kind of peacekeeping that the UN Charter originally kind of had in mind. That was about trans-border aggression, and the focus was supposed to be on keeping countries from invading other countries. The Persian Gulf War had been a classic example. Uh, Iraq invades um, Kuwait. We rolled, you know, with the sanction of the UN uh, Security Council, we rolled the troops back. And I just, I think I suggested there may be a trade-off between these two goals that, you know, if, if, uh, of, of intervening in the internal affairs of countries and, um and keeping the peace uh, between them, I, I still, I, I, well, I feel that, if anything, more strongly than ever, having looked at how a number of interventions in, you know, whether Libya, Syria, uh, and in a certain sense, Iraq, uh, worked out. But uh, I, I want to I wanna get to Russia, and now I want to uh, compliment you on your prescience. Um, the, so NATO expansion, Bill Clinton decided to expand NATO. Uh, a number of people uh, in the foreign policy establishment were opposed to this. You were opposed to it. And you did the, the, us the great service of actually interviewing for one of your columns, one of the most eminent foreign policy figures of, of the 20th century in America, George Kennan, uh, so-called architect of the policy of containment. He warned against NATO expansion. We expanded it. Now, from Russia's point of view, uh, you know, we talk about the things that may have uh, led to the deterioration of, of relations with Russia. And, of course, right now, most people aren't talking about American contributions to deterioration at all in America. But uh, even the people who talk about it usually don't go back to Kosovo. But Kosovo drove them crazy for the following reason. They, they were uh, Russia was against NATO expansion. We started expanding NATO. And what's the first thing we do? OK. We intervene in a country that had been part, not just part of the Soviet bloc, but Serbia was a Slavic country, Orthodox Christian country, like Russia, long-standing kind of affinity. And so from Russia's point of view, and and that did not, that that intervention did not have uh, the sanction of the UN Security Council as the Bosnia intervention had had, which I supported. Um... And if, 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 you, if, you could, if you get Putin alone now and, and say, start listing your grievances, he would, he would probably start with Kosovo. I think maybe he became prime minister during that or something. I don't know. But, but uh, this was, this looms very large in, uh, in the Russian consciousness, as does our subsequent recognition of the independence of Kosovo after we helped them uh, kind of uh, carve out their autonomy. Yeah, I, I was just beginning as a columnist then, so I don't remember exactly um, what position I had. Frankly, I'd have to go reread it, but I was always wary of, of that because my, my view of, on Russia and, and NATO expansion was very simple. Um, I, I, I'm not a you know, Russia expert at all, but I, I am an expert in this. We dreamed all our lives of a democratic revolution in Russia. 
And then it happened. And it seemed to me our first obligation and interest was to try to consolidate it um, and to try to integrate Russia into the West, um, including into NATO, as far as I was concerned. Whether it was possible, I don't know. But the fact that we prioritized bringing Bulgaria into NATO over consolidating democracy in Russia, and again, I wasn't an expert at all. It just seemed on the basic math of it, just kind of stupid. And um, so that's what brought me to call George Kennan. Um, and uh, he gave me a remarkable interview that almost laid out point by point what happened, which is mm -hmm. that we will expand NATO. Russia will be too weak to resist. One day it will get stronger. It will resist. And then all the NATO expanders will say, I told you so. That's right. Um, and so, which is basically what happened. Um, now, you know, that for me, as you know, because we've talked about this, the Ukraine war is a, it forked off into a separate issue. Um, but the the broader point, uh, I think, still needs to be reminded of people. And and Bob, it was, we were a small group, myself, Michael Mandelbaum, but also Bill Perry, who was then Bill Clinton's defense secretary, mm -hmm. Sam Nunn, and Dick Luger. And of course, Luger and Nunn were working together with Russia a lot then uh, to ensure the security and safety of their nuclear program and nuclear scientists. So I, I still um, consider it a, a huge mistake. I, on this trip, I don't remember where I was, but I ran into a, a U.S. diplomat who introduced himself to me, and he said, um, uh, you remember, but we met, blah, 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 blah. And at the time, I was working the Russia question, and, um, uh, and um, uh, you were opposed to NATO expansion, and you were wrong. I mean, so my, my position stuck in the craw of a right. lot of people back then because you know we I was using the platform of the New York Times to really drive this point home. And um, uh, to me, uh, you know, nothing good came of it. But again, I, I will talk about this more. To me, that isn't uh, the entire cause of this Ukraine war at all. Although in the first column I wrote about Ukraine, I did say, hey, I'm, I'm on the side of the Ukrainians, but NATO is not innocent here, you know. Um, and uh, there we are. Yeah. No, I wouldn't say it's the entire cause. Uh, there are a lot of contributing factors. And it gets so complicated by the end that it's it's hard to disentangle them. Right. I mean, for example, a, a, an example of their interconnection is, um, you know, in 2014, there was this, uh, well, I would say violent overthrow of a democratically elected president. Uh, the U.S. was in, in a certain sense, well, people argue about how supportive it was. It certainly uh, kind of celebrated it and, and had supported the demonstrations, the protests that, that ultimately led to it. and. Um, the uh, and, and then Putin responded to that by uh, seizing Crimea. I was just listening to this biography of Putin, and there's this quote from him, like back in 2000, I think it's as far back as 2008, after we had said we did want Ukraine to be uh, uh, part of NATO eventually, which I think you'll probably agree was, well, I don't know, I certainly don't think was the finest hour of the Bush administration. Oh, um, it was a bridge too far. But Putin saying, I think back in 2008, imagine NATO in control of Sebastopol. That's the naval base in Crimea, the Russian Black Fleet headquarters in Crimea. So although the 2014 revolution was not, it, it was more, it was as, at least as much about the EU as about NATO. In Putin's mind, NATO was a factor. And, 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 and the fact that we had already said we want Ukraine to be. So anyway, it's complicated. I agree. Uh, and, uh, it would, you know, um, but, uh, let's, let me ask you if you've had any thoughts 
lately about, um, well, just prospect. Well, what's your take on things lately in Ukraine? There's about to be this apparently big Ukrainian offensive. No one seems to think uh, peace is a near-term prospect. Have you had any thoughts on this? Well, I don't mean to be glib about this, but if Democrats and Republicans can agree on a deficit debt, you know, (laughs) ceiling deal, then maybe Ukrainians and Russians can as well. They're they're sort of on the same edge of the spectrum. Look, it's clear, Bob, that both sides are are, uh, determined to uh, have one last big go at this. Um, and uh, and and see if anybody can break the other's lines, as it were. Um, I weep for that. I weep for the cost of it to uh, you know both 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 countries uh, and to Europe and to Ukraine. But it seems to be now baked into the cake. Um, uh, my hope is whatever happens happens quickly, um, and then we get um, to some kind of negotiation. But it's going to be very very difficult um, because. You, know, you have another thing looming in the background, which I'd urge you to keep an eye on, and I'd love to see you write about this at some point. I, I did a column about this early in the war. You know, the w- Western banks are holding $300 billion in Russian reserves, mm-hmm. which have been frozen since the beginning of the conflict. And you can bet after this war, and quite understandably, from my point of view, Ukraine is going to say, hey, that money needs to come to us for rebuilding and reparations for the war. And there'll be a lot of people around the world to do that. I've studied this issue a little, and I discovered, Bob, it's actually very difficult to just sort of attach, you know, um, someone else's reserves in your banks, you know, in Europe, in the United States, uh, in Japan, et cetera. But there's going to be a big fight about that down the road. And what I what I actually weep for, Bob, is this, you know, I, I believe that um, uh, the biggest divide in the world is no longer east-west, north-south, communist capitalist. It's increasing between a world of order and a world of disorder. It's actually harder to be a country now. Uh, average is over for countries. And we're seeing the results of that. Countries are just fracturing and fragmenting in our hemisphere. It's Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, and Europe. Now it's Sudan. I mean, these are giant countries. And they're spilling out their people, trying to get from the world of disorder into the world of order. Vladimir Putin, between sort of when he took out power, you know, um, after Yeltsin, um, up till this war, start of this war, I would describe Vladimir Putin as kind of a bad boy. But he was, at the end of the day, you could call him up and say, Vlad, after 9-11 or whatever, I need you. And, and the Israelis could do it, whether it's in Syria, and, he, and he'd respond. Um, he was in the world of order. And what I weep for most is that the Russia that will come out of this war will be kind of a giant North Korea, only with 11 time zones, 5,000 nuclear weapons, very angry with an aggrieved and weakened leader, um, and fighting now just to recoup his savings you know, uh, the country's savings in, in these uh, frozen accounts. And it's just going to make for a world that is much less manageable to deal with all these transnational problems. So that's kind of where I'm, I'm sort of leaping to the end of this war. There's going to have to be some kind of dirty deal, you know, that that concludes it. But um, I, I wish it had never happened. I think it's a real tragedy. It, it, I'll tell you, listening to the, uh, uh, the biography I've been listening to uh, of Putin, it just makes me sad when you look at the early years of the millennium and the, I think, sincere hopes on both sides, really, but including on Putin's, that Russia would become part of the Western world. I that, wrote a comment that people sometimes throw back in my face, but it was just about how we, we need to invest in this guy and, and that he was, he was a hope, you know, and... Um, you know, Leon Aaron, who's someone I pay attention to a lot, Leon's writing a biography of Putin right now. And 
And Leon really draws a line between sort of the first eight or nine years of Putin and the second eight or nine years. The first eight or nine years, a time of rising oil prices and rising prosperity in Russia. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Leon would describe him as a distributor of wealth then, you know, uh, basically, and and distributor of order uh, uh, post kind of breakdown after the Soviet Union. But that changed when Russia went into much greater economic decline. And I think he changed too, in all honesty. And he became then a distributor, these are my words, of dignity. You know, he, and a guy kind of looking for dignity for Russians in all the wrong places. And yeah. and and as you said, this is all so complicated and intertwined. And, and, you know, at the beginning of this war, I may have said this last time, you know, when a war like this starts, I, as a foreign affairs columnist, ask myself, where should I be? But should I be in Kiev, Lviv, Moscow, Warsaw, you know, uh, Brussels, Berlin, or Washington? And from the beginning of this war, Bob, there's been only one place to be to cover this war, and that's Vladimir Putin's head, because it all has been combusting there. And unfortunately, he doesn't give visas. And so we don't, you know, it's all going to, it's all combusting mm -hmm. there. And I, 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 if you said, hey, who would you like to interview in the world today for like three hours? It would be Vladimir Putin. Yeah. And, you know, I think what you said about dignity is, is so important. I mean, people everywhere want dignity and respect. And certainly, if you are a, if you were only yesterday one of the world's superpowers, and you're a civilization with a great heritage, Russian civilization, um, you know, you want a certain amount of respect. I, I had John Mearsheimer on recently, and of course, John has this strict kind of game theoretical national security optimizing thing. And I said, yeah, I think national security was a big part of his calculation, but he's also human, and he kept looking for respect that we kept not giving him. I mean, right after he was the first to call George Bush after the 9-11 attacks, uh, and they provided us real support in the Afghanistan yeah. war. And within months, Bush said, oh, by the way, this thing that's so important to you that we not withdraw from the anti-ballistic missile treaty? Sorry. And and, and there was a, there were just a series of those kinds of things. And I think I, yeah, go ahead. I, I, I maybe we talked about this last time, but I don't know if I if we didn't, I'll, I'll, I will tell you. So I actually changed my business card five years ago. <laughs> um, uh, to say Thomas L. Friedman, New York Times foreign affairs columnist. It now says Tom Self Friedman, New York Times humiliation and dignity columnist. Yeah. As I look back on my career and realize I'd really spent my career covering people acting out on their humiliation and questing for dignity, the two most powerful human emotions. In the case of, of, of Russia, it was you know, Putin saw the collapse of the Soviet Union as what he said, the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. With China, Chinese speak about a century of humiliation, whether it's Israelis, Palestinians versus Israelis, Sephardic Jews versus Oriental Jews, Muslim youth in Europe. Uh, versus a Christian majority, if you sit and engage them, Bob, you can set your watch. Within five minutes, one of them will use the term humiliation. Right, and that's why it's always been very much um, part of my how I how I look at the world and cover it. Right, and of course, we would both hasten to add: none of this is meant to excuse the invasion. It was a violation it. of international law. At the same time, if you look back and someone in your neighborhood committed some horrendous crime, and you realize that. There's something you could have done to prevent it from being committed. You need to review that as you think about how you're going to live the rest of your life and what your policy toward uh, people is going to be going forward. You know, I just say one thing, you know, and I said this to you before. Um, uh, the reason I so appreciate what you write is that you annoy me, which I consider the greatest compliment. Happy um, to do it. A columnist can give to a uh, to a, someone he's reading because I think you are just, you know, bringing up and I've tried to do this myself, is that there is other ways of looking at this. And I've learned from the Iraq war period that 
that is a vital role for the for the press to play. And um, uh, and even if you annoy me, um, I, I I invite it and encourage it, and I try to be annoying to other people because it means it means they think you're on the level. I, I know people who would say you're doing. I know people who would say you're doing a good job. Uh, but uh, I won't. I won't invite them onto the podcast right now. Exactly. Go um, ahead. The the uh, so on the well, the on the prospects for peace. I guess what among the things that concern me. I mean, here's 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 my take: is it, it would be great if you could somehow get Russia to vacate all of the land they have illegally taken. I mean, of course. Crimea is intrinsically problematic because I think so many people in Crimea prefer to be part of, of Russia. But even if you leave that aside and just imagine somehow pushing Russia back to the borders uh, everywhere else, um, I just worry that you can't do that without posing an existential threat to the regime that could lead to either horizontal escalation, bringing NATO into the war, or to nuclear escalation. Um, and I'm not sure, I don't know what the Biden administration is thinking about this, but do you have a take on that? Yeah, my, my worry, I mean, you alluded to it, Bob, is that um, let's say the Ukrainians break their line somewhere. I mean, really um, make a major military advance and that potentially encircles large number of Russian forces. What I worry is that Putin will escalate. You know, the till apply the Don Rumsfeld rule, you know, when you can't solve a problem, expand it. Uh-huh. And expand it to that nuclear level and basic and I don't I don't know how. But then say to the West, you know, I'm crazy. Um and uh we need you need to intervene to stop all of this. Um what what worries me about this war and it's worried me from the very beginning and, and it's embedded in your commentary there is it's like it's like I don't I don't know what the natural obvious like deal is. You know, it just doesn't feel like there's one there right now. And so the best you can kind of hope for is a ceasefire that doesn't sacrifice the principle which you alluded early to, you know, the inadmissibility of land by force, be kind of a frozen conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in my view, Ukraine is allowed to join the EU, but we declare it will never be in NATO, but we um, uh, provide certain security guarantees for the Ukrainians so they know that the Russians can't just break the ceasefire, you know, uh, at will. Somehow those feel like the ingredients of a deal. Um, and I, I welcome anybody um, intervening right now to, um, I, I've said to my Chinese you know, sort of friends in, in the government there that, um, you know, if, if Xi Jinping wanted, there's a, there's a peace, Nobel Peace Prize there waiting for him because mm-hmm. he actually has the leverage in Moscow and the economic resources to say to the Ukrainians, you know, if you will do this, we will do X, Y, and Z. And um, that's intervention I would certainly welcome. Yeah, I mean, one one hope of mine is that China's expressed disapproval of, of uh, Russia's possible use of a nuclear weapon will re- at least reduce the chances of that happening in a moment of desperation. That said, it, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't rule out, again, if, if like Russian forces are collapsing or something and Putin is worried about his regime, and I think we're seeing more reason for him to possibly be worried. There's a lot of like, this Prigozhin guy's mouthing off a lot more than I would if I thought the leader of my country was really in control of stuff. And, and uh, you know, I, I worry that uh, option number two for Putin is, well, let's, uh, let's bomb the supply lines in Poland to, to show him we mean business. And then, 
you've got the prospect of it expanding to NATO, which let's be honest, Ukraine wouldn't mind. I don't blame them for not minding it, right? right. If their country is at stake, at the same time, we need to be clear that we don't want that to happen. Well, I, you know, it's a very interesting, I wrote a column early on in this in which I said, it, you know, kind of if I were Putin, what I, I would do, or what I think he might do is, is bomb um, uh, NATO supply lines in Poland and test Article 5. Uh -huh. so it, it, like, if you really want to blow up NATO, test Article 5. You know, I mean, what you got, baby, what you got. Um, but I don't think that's going to end the war. So, I, But it would be sort of an interesting chess move right now. But mm -hmm. um, you know, I think the thing we've learned about Putin, though, from this, you know, so many times you read or talked to people who met with him and said, you know, we Americans were just playing checkers. But that guy plays chess. Turns out, actually, Bob, he was playing Russian roulette by himself with a loaded pistol. And he just, just wasn't that smart. No, he, he totally miscalculated in, in, in ways that can happen as you uh, become an older autocrat, I think. And uh, <laughs> you've been selecting people based uh, on their loyalty uh, and you're surrounded by them now. Um, the, uh, uh, it, it, was, it was a real gamble. I mean, I understood what he had in mind. He thought he had it, uh, you know, it, it was going to be a, a quick regime change operation. They had made extensive preparations on the grounds as far as intelligence and infiltration, but it was still a big, it was still a big undertaking. And uh, it, it was- uh, and it turned out Ukraine is what it says it was. That we're, they, they were real people in a real nation with a real collective will. And I think yeah. he clearly talked himself out of that. Yeah. I mean, what worries me, like if I'm Biden, I mean, I'm thinking- like in a way, okay, we've said you get these M1 tanks in September. You eventually get F-16s. If I'm Biden, I'm thinking, okay, that that's the way to use that now that we've made those commitments is as leverage with Putin. Say, look, this is what we got coming out, okay? You know, this is not going to get easier for you. Let's talk uh, peace. They're not going to totally withdraw their forces from Ukraine. That's not a political possibility for Putin. But if I'm Biden, I'll settle for that. And the latest thing that worries me about how the Biden administration is handling this, this happened while you were in the Middle East. I don't know how much attention you paid for it. I'm, heard, I'm, I'm sure you, you paid to it. I'm sure you heard about this incursion into Russia. Yeah. Now, okay, so this was pretty clearly, uh, you know, aided and abetted by the Ukrainian military establishment, probably the military intelligence directorate. There's like no doubt it had Ukrainian government support. Now, it was conducted, uh, first of all, they gave them a number of uh, armored vehicles we had given them, okay? Uh, not just some these, but these like Max Pro things, like at least half a dozen of those. And, and the two groups they entrusted with the responsibility of invading, one of them is a flat-out neo-Nazi group whose expressed preference, you know, they want to start a re revolution in Russia. You know what they want to do then? They think Russia should be all white. They think the citizenry should be all white. These are flat out neo-Nazis. Nobody denies it. And, and, and remember, Putin's talking point before he invaded, he said two things. NATO is using Ukraine as a platform. Whether or not they admit it to NATO, it, there's a de facto NATOization going on. They're giving them equipment. They want to use it to threaten Russia, A. And B, there are neo-Nazi elements in the government that we need to get rid of. So what does the government do? They send neo-Nazis into Russian territory with our armored vehicles. And I mean, tell me if I'm being crazy, but like, I think we need to have sent a stronger signal. I mean, 
the Biden administration did send these kind of subtle signals of disapproval. I think at some point we need to lay down the line because I think Ukraine is learning that it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. So far, we have not really give them any kind of, uh, you know, public blowback for any of these lines that we tell them they shouldn't cross. And I think this definitely qualifies as one. And again, I think this is the kind of thing that could turn this into a broader conflict involving NATO, whatever. It's in some ways a propaganda bonanza for Putin. Um, so I don't know. You tell me. Am I overreacting? Well, it's, a, it's a really important question to be raising because, as I understood early in the war, one reason the administration didn't want to send Ukraine certain weapons, as is the case also with the Germans, they didn't want to see American tanks crossing the Ukraine-Russian border. That that was they understood what a crosses belly at a larger scale that would be. So um, I just haven't reported out, frankly, about you know what was the dynamic going on there. Um, part of it is Ukrainians saying, you know, we're sitting here getting our brains beaten out every day by Russia, which has you know, fires at us long-range weapons from its sanctuary. How about a little fire scarecrow? You know, right. but this is exactly um, how wider wars get wider, you know, yeah. uh, and why I hope that whatever happens, happens quickly here. And we get to some kind of stable solution that for me, the most important thing is that Ukraine be locked into the European Union. Yeah. Um, yeah. I totally understand why Ukraine does pretty much everything they do. I, I'm just saying that, you know, America has its interests, including this right. not becoming a larger conflagration. Ukraine has its. Now, I think the neo-Nazi involvement is not smart, even from Ukraine's point of view. This imperils the future supply of Western weapons uh, in the long run. You you touched on something. It was one of the reasons, because I don't know a lot about internal Ukrainian politics. So um, one of the things I've learned now, uh, Lo, having done this job for 42 years, never fall in love. You know, and so from the very beginning of this war, I've tried to take a very business-like approach when Lloyd Austin said, we're fighting this war to kind of bring down the Soviet Union. I, I wrote a column uh, highly critical of that. Our job is to help Ukrainians recover their country from uh, and for what is, for me, a, 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 an attack that was unjustified. Um, uh, and, and, and that's it. And then um, get them into the European Union. I'm not out to destroy the Soviet, to destroy Russia, bring down Putin. Uh, that's a job for his people. Um, I think it's important simply to restore this principle of the inadmissibly, inadmissibility of taking territory by force in the middle of Europe in particular right now and um, uh, and get this thing over as quickly as possible. But mm-hmm. I'm not um, I've been very careful in, in my own tone um, and not to fall in love. I don't want, I don't want to because here's my fear. You wake up after this war and you discover a there are Nazis or not probe Nazi sympathizers in key positions in government. And you discover massive corruption. Mm. Um, And I don't want to be, you know, I I think we need to be alive to that right now. Let's focus on our interests and what I think are legitimate interests of Ukrainians. Let's get this thing shut down. Uh, There are other things or causes I want to fall in love with. Not this one. Yeah. So uh, anyway, a lot going on in the world. The thing we didn't have time to talk about is uh, artificial intelligence. You did write uh, a thing about that lately. I mean, and I think you, you rightly observed that there's a lot of potential upside. Uh, there's also a lot of possibility for destabilization um, emanating from it. It's just going to uh, change so many things. But uh, so uh, I don't know anything you want to mention or plug. I know you're always working on a book uh, too soon to pre-order probably uh, in uh, this case. Too soon to pre-order. We're, uh, 
I've been working on a book actually um, on uh, how I write a column. You know, um, huh. which is just a proxy for how I, how I, how I learn and how I navigate the world. Is something I've I've uh, had a lot of tacit knowledge on because I've just been doing it. And um, I once taught a course on it for my daughter's college when she was in college, and I had fun doing it. It's fun sometimes to sit back and and think about tacit knowledge that you've developed and try to codify it. And I don't know many things, but I sort of know how to write a column. I mean, some people would agree, some would disagree, but uh, I'd like to, uh, I'm just having fun sitting back and thinking about um, thinking about the world right now. Okay, well, that sounds good. Yeah. Uh, listen, thank you for taking the time. I know you're busy. I know Thanks, a lot. Everybody. I know a lot of people are out there thinking, well, he's good, but he's no Mickey Kaus. <laughs> and, and I would just say, who among us is? You know, who among us is? It's a high bar. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Bob. Anytime. One other thing that I meant to add, actually, before Tom signed off, although Mickey has gone AWOL this week, there will be a parrot room posted sometime Friday night. It will feature two very special guests whom I've known a very long time. And we're going to talk about, among other things, the state of media and how it has changed and is changing. Plus. We're going to reminisce about what it was like to work at a daily newspaper before anyone had heard of the internet, which is something the three of us actually did together long, long ago. And we'll talk about miscellaneous other stuff. Uh, so that conversation will appear at patreon.com slash parrot room or on your podcast app in your special members only podcast feed. If you're already a parrot room, Patreon, or for that matter, if you're a paid subscriber to the Non-Zero newsletter. So check it out. See you there.